What's up, people? I'm Carl Massive. Just want to take a quick moment to say that I'm gay. I've been meaning to do this for a while now, but I finally feel comfortable enough to get it off my chest. Um, I just think that representation and visibility are so important. I actually hope that like one day, videos like this and the whole coming out process are just not necessary. But until then, you know, I'm gonna do my best and do my part to cultivate a culture that's accepting, that's compassionate. Pride and poise. It's been a theme from the Raiders, whether they've been in Oakland, Los Angeles, or Las Vegas. And pride and poise is shown on this Pride Month as Carl Nassib, one of the silver and black, became the NFL's first active player to come out. We beam into history. Hello and happy Pride. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb. This is the Transporter Room, an intersection of sports, transness, geek culture, sci-fi, video gaming, and other stuff. And we have some special guests this week. Some artists using their art to send a special message and the ownership of the Atlanta dream one year after a moment turned into the movement and weighed heavy on one of the most contentious elections in American history. That to come. But first, inclusion is on a winning streak in this Pride Month. As you heard at the top of our show, the voice of Carl Nassib, Pass rusher for the Las Vegas Raiders, former All-American at Penn State, swept a lot of the defensive awards in college football in 2015, has bounced around the league a little bit. Not only has he found a home with the Raiders, he found the confidence to affirm his truth. On Monday, coming out as gay via Instagram, and also announcing that he's going to give $100,000 to the Trevor Project. And the National Football League decided... We're going to match the gift. NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell said in a statement, quote, The NFL family is proud of Carl for courageously sharing his truth today. Representation matters. We share his hope that someday soon, statements like his will no longer be newsworthy as we march toward full equality for the LGBTQ plus community. Houston Texans star J.J. Watt said in a tweet, Good for you, Carl. Glad you feel comfortable enough to share, and hopefully someday these types of announcements will no longer be considered breaking news. And Hall of Fame quarterback Warren Moon rang in in a tweet, saying, quote, Really proud of Carl Nassib. I played with several guys who were never comfortable enough to go public. They were great teammates and very talented. NFL insider Adam Schefter tweeted that Nassib's jersey was the top-selling NFL jersey across the online fan store Fanatics for both June 21st and June 22nd. Even with celebration, leave it to L.G. Granderson to bring a caveat and a conscience. The columnist and sports writer tweeted, Yo, so real quick, I'm seeing way too many who cares and a country that introduced more than 250 anti-LGBTQ bills this year. A lot of people care. Yes, a lot of people do care. Not just in the United States, but halfway around the world. Where on Monday, there was another announcement. Laurel Hubbard confirmed selected by the New Zealand Olympic Committee to compete in weightlifting at next month's Summer Olympics in Tokyo. Hubbard will join USA BMX freestyler Chelsea Wolfe, who was selected as an alternate two weeks ago as the first transgender Olympians. Now, there's a lot of debate, perhaps even more intense in Hubbard's case, because Hubbard will be a confirmed competitor. She will step into the platform and lift next month in Tokyo. And among those who have given their support is a person kind of high up in New Zealand. Their Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, perhaps the most popular head of state in the world right now, told Radio New Zealand on Tuesday that she's all on Team Hubbard. That's the case for Laurel, but also the team in New Zealand. They have followed the rules. The alternative is to have someone who's followed the rules but then is denied the ability to participate. Ultimately, I leave it to those bodies, and that's the decision they've made, and it's in keeping with the standard that's been set globally. 2016 New Zealand weightlifting Olympian and former Commonwealth Games medalist 
Tracy Lambricks disagrees, saying that it's not fair for Hubbard to compete. Laurel was a male weightlifter into the age of 30, so he's had 30 years worth of testosterone. Laurel's had the benefits of extra testosterone. Laurel's also totaled um, 300 kilos. So not only is she physically stronger, Laurel has that mental strength in the fact that she has totaled 300 kilos um, before. And in weightlifting, your mental game is is important. If you know you can do something, that is going to take you a lot further than those moments of disbelieving. So there's more than one beneficial, uh, beneficial um, factor here, which is why I don't think it's fair. But within the debate, there's a question. How will this affect Hubbard? And how will this affect other trans people watching this story unfold? Dr. Jamie Veal, Senior Lecturer of Psychology at Waukegan University and on the board of directors of the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, had this to say. These so-called debates, like simply debating a trans woman's right to be actually treated as an equal citizen um, and to compete in a sport in the way that anybody else can, like when we're actually having these debates about like taking away her rights, that's dehumanizing and it's only going to cause further prejudice against transgender people. Amid this debate, a lot of anti-trans heat coming down. And we're seeing that, especially here in the United States, with all the legal action across more than 30 states in this country. But the situation has also inspired one of the nation's up-and-coming theater companies to use art to do some truth-telling. The Actors Theater of Louisville will put on a performance of the acclaimed play The Wolves by Sarah DeLappy in a special performance on Tuesday, June 29th. The play is a coming-of-age story set with soccer as a backdrop centering around a group of young girls. The Actors Theater is going to put a little twist on this by putting an all-trans cast into the performance. And we have the producer and the director of this show beaming up to the transporter room. Artist Theater producer Charlie Hanno and director Regina Victor coming up, coming at you. Energize. Live and direct from the Actors Theater of Louisville, Charlie Hanno, Regina Victor, good to see you both. This is an interesting project that you're doing. First, The Wolves is an excellent play, but the way you're going to do it is a little bit different. What made you decide to go for, let's go all out for a gender nonconforming trans cast for this show? And what was the inspiration behind that decision? Yes. Uh, my name's Charlie Hano, he, him. I'm your producer and casting director on this. There are something like 200 anti-trans bills being pushed in state legislation, and almost all of them target transgender children. Once a week, I called uh, every single state legislator who was being presented with the bill. And once I actually spoke to a politician and I wound up nearly like weeping on the phone, just bearing my soul, this bill will harm children, all these things. And I was met with a very, uh, what he said to me was, isn't it great that we can have disagreements about this, these things? I appreciate your perspective. And that's where the conversation ended. And I realized that there was, there's so much misinformation about transgender children and transgender athletes. There's this transgender people, we never really get to be kids. We never really get to be seen as kids, I think, particularly if you are trans femme or a person of color. And I thought, wouldn't it be fun if we could just do a play that is so famously about youth and childhood and sports and have all these wonderful trans actors in it and show people the true spectrum of being trans. Just the idea of the person that you're arguing in your head, it's a boogeyman. Absolutely. I love that, Charlie. I think that's so true. You know, some of this legislation, I wish that people would understand uh, that it's really about policing children in general. 
Uh, like trans children are the target, but I was just reading a bill from Maine because, you know, we all up in that research right now. Um, but in it, it said that it was preventing any students to join something designated for females, women or girls, except for students of the female gender. But the way that someone has to dispute this is to get a signed statement from a physician stating that you're female based on your internal and external reproductive anatomy and naturally occurring level of testosterone and an analysis of a student's chromosomes. Now, does that sound like anything any parent wants their children to have examined at any time, regardless of their gender? Because I do not think that's safe in any capacity. Um, and to take a show like The Wolves, where you know it's traditionally performed by a cast of majority white women, sometimes diverse, uh, we're asked to suspend disbelief about age. There's a note at the top of the script that says, uh, we are always the same age inside. And so it makes a lot of sense to me to take this script that is really about hearing teenage girls who are often overlooked and their opinions on the world and transposing that onto trans femmes and trans people um, just feels correct to be able to show our humanity, as Charlie pointed out. Well, I can tell you, being an athlete, that would be, I mean, this already is, intrigues me from that level, just from the mere story itself. but. Tell me about the core of actors that you were able to get and able to get to sign on to this. How was it working with them? How was it molding them? How will this be different from the original vision of this particular play? We are actually, you're getting the super behind the scenes scoop because our first rehearsal is this evening. Um, so we've just gone through the casting process and we'll rehearse all this evening and present it live uh, on that Tuesday 29th. Um, but our casting process has been super exciting in the way that we've been able to go outside of the box. And something beautiful happens when you cast trans people in that you're really casting for essence of character. I think a lot in theater, we get tripped up on a type, especially in something like musical theater, right? You're an ingenue, you're a slight femme, you know, whatever that may be. Um, but in casting trans folks, you're casting people to play what they can do best in the nature of who they are and what they can bring. And I'm sure our brilliant casting director, Charlie, could speak more to that. There were a lot of conversations about what does it mean if a non-binary person says this, what does it mean? If a very passing, whatever that means, trans person says this. And we had all these wonderful tools and resources and we were just placing people in different spots to see what story we could tell. It's, at the end of the day, I think in any production of The Wolves, often people are sort of thought of like, what does it mean if, X person goes here or X person goes Y. I think if any, in any production of The Wolves, most actors will go out for at least two roles. And it was fascinating to do that when our pool of actors, well, yes, they're all trans, they are all so different. Now with that in mind, how will the, how will the story change a little bit? How will kind of, how certain things that are in the story change just a little bit? with this type of cast as opposed to a cast which is mostly cis. Go ahead, Charlie. Yes, you have a thought. Uh, not to give too much away, but there's a joke about Harry Potter in the script that <laughs> I... <laughs> oh. oh, I'm definitely going to watch now. <laughs> it's going to hit different. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I think, you know, the story both changes and doesn't change in a way that I think is really delicious because, uh, you know, we did have this huge web of folks, as Charlie points out, and a lot of opportunity for specificity, which we took advantage of. But then there also comes this reminder that, like, we are here to play, that this play is about playing as children and, and sports, you know? And so we're able to play with some things and to suspend some disbelief on things and to accept things that we might otherwise say, oh, that wouldn't be true. Like there's a lot of conversation about girls getting their period. And I was like, I don't care who says these lines. I don't care at all. I think it's actually like, that's what I wanna believe is that anyone I'm looking at could have their period because that's just true. And so it was a really nice way to sort of break down some of those things and to see people as people in these roles. Um, so that's the way that the story kind of doesn't change actually, it, but is also transformed. Now, one thing, 
De- I mean, are either of you like say participating athletes? Do you play sports now? Did you play sports gro- growing up or play sport- sports through your process? If so, how did that affect kind of the approach that you're taking to getting this on stage? Yeah. Um, so I competed, I did tennis uh, competitively. I played soccer when I was super young uh, and I was a goalie and I did not like getting hit in the face. So that, that was short lived. Um, a lot of racket sports. And, uh, and I think what's interesting about that is my team experience comes mostly from competitive cheer. Uh, which is wildly athletic and often overlooked. Uh, but I did that for many, many years. And that sort of intense, savage camaraderie <laughs> that is true of teenage and elementary girls, I think is very clear when it comes to cheerleading. Uh, we were monsters. And so I'm bringing a lot of that into the room in terms of how we approach this. Uh, like all of the men in my family, I am famously unathletic. Uh, I, uh, I've got asthma. I think, uh, sports to, you know, is magic and I can't wait to see all the magic that we have. I did, I was a theater kid in high school, which probably isn't surprising. And that is its own type of cutthroat and competitive and cruel when applied to teenagers. And I can sometimes think about the play through that lens. Now, Charlie, especially, what type of emotion do you think this will bring up for you getting this show produced and getting it together? Because from my end, what what Regina was just talking about for me makes me wish I was in the show. Because there's one thing I wish I could have had was that experience of there's a certain energy of little girls on the team. I wish I could have I could have experienced. Yes. What kind of emotions do you think are going to come up as you're building this? Seeing that in some ways, like with what you just said, this is telling perhaps a piece of your story as well. My dream for this is that every trans person watching the show has an incredibly joyful experience and I will cry quietly and no one will pay attention to that. I want us to have a piece of art that isn't talking about our suffering. I I love it. I love all of the representation that we are getting and all the things that are being made for us. But almost every trans actor that I talk to, they'll say like, I want to do something where I don't have to talk about the thing. And for the purposes of this reading, we've created a space where we're talking about the thing, but not showing the thing, if that makes sense. No, that makes perfect sense because there's something I want to touch on for both of you. First, what are your thoughts on what you're seeing in the landscape? Because we talked earlier about all the bills. There's up to 37 states now where these things have been introduced, have been debated, have been defeated, or have been passed. What's your, for the both of you, what's your thoughts on what you're seeing in the landscape right now? I think that what we are seeing is indicative of a general backslide on human rights. You know, I think it started uh, or started, well, it continued uh, with, you know, George Floyd and with Breonna Taylor and with some of the more publicized murders that we experienced. And I think that it's all interrelated for me as it's intersectional in my body. I can't help but think about one and then the other. Um, And I think that we got comfortable. I really do. And I think that now we're experiencing a, a lot of fear and a lot of people seeing if they can act out of fear. And I think that this play is an act of love to counteract that. And, and just to answer too, I'm so glad, Carly, that you asked that question of what do you hope people take away? Um, and I think what I want people to take away is just what I experience in the casting of this show, which is not only that you have a team, but that you have a bench. We could have cast this show three or four times. You have a first, second, and third string of trans talent in this country and people to amplify your story. And that's really what I want people to walk away with. Also, for both of you, I want you to respond to something that actually... I read this on Twitter today, and it's from someone who is trans who is commenting on all the backlash from the news. In this coming Olympics in Tokyo, there are two confirmed athletes who are trans who have made Olympic teams. Incredible. Chelsea, yes, Chelsea Wolf from the United States is a BMX freestyler who qualified as an alternate. And the other one will be a confirmed competitor, weightlifter Laurel Hubbard of New Zealand. And with especially with Hubbard, whose name has been kind of like thrown around these last few years, there was a lot of backlash. And there was one person who was trans on Twitter who 
I read who said, we don't get to celebrate any joy. What are your thoughts on that feeling in contrast to what you're hoping people take away from this and what you're seeing in this process already to find the talent that you found to be a part of this? I feel very fortunate that from the start of this, even just from the earliest conversations, the what if of it all have been joyful and supportive and fun. And the playwright who is this wonderful cisgender woman has been so gracious. We are often asked to walk around our joy. I hate knowing that if I see a trans woman in on TV and particularly if she's very beautiful, I know something bad's going to happen to her. When yes, bad things happen to us, but we also you, we go to the movies. We do fall in love. Sometimes we have jobs that we like. I, I want people to empathize with us while we're still alive. Oh, and thank we- you for saying that. Mm. Thank you for saying that. Say it one more time for the people in the back. Please, Charlie. <laughs> I want people to empathize with us when we're alive and while we're not perfect. Yeah. Teenage- Teenagers are mean. We all know that that they grow out of it or they don't. I love that, Charlie. Thank you so much for that. Because, yeah, I think we are not often allowed to experience joy. And I think that's our job as artists is to show people how to find that path to joy. You know, my my mission as an artist is using black radical imagination to to evaluate the past and present and facilitate healing for the future. So I'm like all this evaluating of this legislation uh, of the present and the creating a future that we can believe in is kind of how I view this project. I'm fighting back tears hearing that because that is such an important point that, you know, give us our flowers when we're still here. And with that in mind, this is a virtual production. If I wanted to see this, and you know I do, how can all the people who support the Transporter Room be there to support you? Absolutely. You can head to actorstheater.org. We are on the front page, which I feel like has to be said because that is often not a thing that is relegated when we do these sort of specialized readings. Um, So we're front and center on the front page and you can donate to the ACLU by buying a ticket. Well, I can tell you, we're going to be putting that all over our Twitter page, all over our Facebook. Tuesday, June 29th at 7.30 Eastern Daylight Time. Tickets are starting at 10 bucks. All the preceding exceeding costs will go directly to the ACLU of Kentucky in the continuing fight for trans rights, which has very much gone nationwide right now, which has very much gone coast to coast. As you know, this is the transporter room. Regina, you said there's some video gaming you're grooving to right now. Uh-oh, so uh-oh. You, you said you said there's some gaming going on. So I want to <laughs> so what you what you grabbing the controller and what you playing? And Man, what are you I- playing it on? I, so I'm an Xbox One and and a, and a Dell person, Windows person. Oh, oh yes, I actually had to go a- back Xbox to my One, Windows. like your Xbox One, like y'all ready? <laughs> yes, you know, you know. No, I I'm actually a big Assassin's Creed person, which is so random. Um, but I love Assassin's Creed, and they got me with Origins because it's all in Egypt and everybody's actually black, and so <laughs> I'm playing that. Um, I got back into it with Life is Strange. I used to game a lot. Um, and then I played Life is Strange and I forgot how beautiful these like narrative games are. And actually, Carly, you know, a lot of actors uh, voice these games that are theater actors. And even Laura Jackman, who writes, who used to write for Telltale and I believe is now again, um, and worked on the Walking Dead games, is a playwright. So that overlap is why I'm so into it. It's just a cool way to tell stories, man. Um. Uh- this is Regina coming out of the closet to me, actually. I'm very impressed uh, with all of the things. Uh, I'm glad that I know you play Assassin's Creed. I've This is much less cool, and this clearly marks me as the fake gamer. But no I've such re- thing. No such thing. I've, I've, been re- playing video, I've been playing video games for like over 40 years. No such thing. Carly's no right. No such thing. <laughs> have either of you two heard of the dating sim monster prom yes yes i love it i it was my quarantine thing i have never played or purchased a game before this i love it i love that 
you can pick your character and your little pronouns. Uh, I like that when I do it, sometimes I like pretend to be like an intimidating looking guy who just like hangs out in the bathroom all day. Like when I saw the cartoon of that, I was like, oh, what a luxury. Um, which like was more fanciful to me than like being a vampire. Cause I look like one in real life. Oh I love God. that so much. No, that looks cool. That looks cool. And I'm wondering what, what system are you playing it on? I do, my, my little MacBook, my little, my little laptop at home. I have, I have a steam. Well, I'm looking to get an Xbox one when they start building them again. Cause you know, they don't, yeah. <laughs> If you order your next gen console now, you might get it next year. Some that of us is are, so wild. Some of us are still stuck in the Xbox 360 era. I, for myself, are looking for this show, and I'm just wondering for both of you, what is the one thing about this show that that you think will resonate? If I could say, I would say probably the the competition with your friends. I think like the for me the biggest question in the wolves is like why do we compete with our friends? Why do we do that sort of interpersonal jabbing at each other and how does that affect our team confidence? And aren't we just better together? Um, so that is something just from the production. And then of course, like the humanity and joy of transness. I'm really excited for people to celebrate us. I think I want people to see the the innocence of this play in some ways and the innocence that the performers are going to bring to it. I'm looking forward to it. The Actors Theater of Louisville coming out with a special version of The Wolves, June 29th, 7.30 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. How you can log on and be a part of what I think is going to be a special show. We're going to have it on our Twitter page and our Facebook page. Charlie, Regina, thank you for being here on the Transporter Room. I am looking forward to to this show coming up. I, I can't wait to see it. It's, I have a feeling it's going to be beautiful. Thank you so much, Thank Carly. you so much, Carly. This was so fun. <laughs> coming up next on The Transporter Room, it's been a year since the marches in the thick of the pandemic and a year since the revolt within the Atlantic Dream. And we'll have the dynamic women who co-own this team now, Suzanne Hebert and Renee Montgomery, But you hear that sound, which means we're going to take a break and pay some bills. I'm Carly Chardonnay-Webb. This is the Transporter Room. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Transporter Room. I'm Carly Chardonnay-Webb, and it's been more than a year since Ahmaud Aubrey, since Breonna Taylor, since George Floyd. It's been more than a year since the marches while masked and socially distanced, yet specifically determined. And within the battle for the soul of a nation was also the battle for a basketball team in the WNBA, the Atlanta Dream, then owned by Kelly Loeffler. She was an appointed Republican U.S. Senator from Georgia who is open with her opposition to the growing movement against police brutality, and she was calling for her team's players to disassociate from it. The players of the Atlanta Dream said no, and it wasn't just the Atlanta Dream saying no, but an entire WNBA saying no right with them. That kick started an effort to replace Luffler. That effort ended up taking away the team, and it took away her Senate seat in a special election loss to Reverend Raphael Warnock the following January. In March of this year, the new bosses came in, and two of them are with us to look back and look forward. Suzanne Hebert and former WNBA standout Renee Montgomery are beaming up now. Energize. <laughs> Suzanne Hebert, Renee Montgomery, the co-owners of the Atlanta Dream here in the Transporter Room. 
Welcome to the transport. We here. We here. Uh, thank you for having us. Shouts to Larry. He's the other, the the last of our trio. So I always like to shout him out to make sure everyone knows. But yes, we are here. We're excited to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. Well, I'm excited. I'm excited to finally meet two of the movers and shakers of what we of of this metamorphosis that in many ways the WNBA led in this last year. But before we start looking back at, at in a sense, a, a oral history of how we got from there to here, um, let's talk about the here and now. Uh, right now, you're in the thick of the scrum. You're at five and seven, right in the middle of a log jam in the middle for the playoff spots. We're still, we're still a few weeks away from the Olympic break. But where do you see the team right now? You know, for me, I feel like it's that part of the season where it's a grind. You know, there's injuries. There's people trying to overcome injuries. We also know that there's a lot going on with the Olympics where players are going and trying to qualify for their Olympic teams. Some don't play for the USA. There's other players from other countries. So right now it's a it's a very interesting time because there's players in and out of lineups. 3x3 tournament, the trials were for that. So there were players trying out for 3x3 for USA, players trying to get their clubs. You know, we have a player, um, Elizabeth Williams, who will be playing for the Nigerian team. So just a lot of different things going on. But as far as where we are in the pack, I'm okay because I've been on teams where we've been way lower than that at this point and made a run at it in the second half to make the playoffs. So I'm good where we're at. What has been the exciting part of running this team and what has been the difficult part of it? I think the, the exciting part is, is being able to work with these players, right? Being able to support the players, invest in the players, being able to help them amplify their voices in a way that they want to do that. Um, and, you know, being able to put on a, a, a great, product on the court and off the court. I think that's the most exciting thing. The most difficult thing, like anything else, it, it takes work. And it's not that it's difficult. It just, it takes drive. It takes ambition. It takes diligence. Um, it takes dedication. And I think you're looking at two women who are bringing all of those things and will continue to bring that and a whole lot more uh, as we really get, uh, you know, our, our feet under us as the owners of this team. You know, I like to remind people that we took ownership uh, of this of this team on uh, in early March, uh, not an exactly an ideal time with the season that starts in April. Um, and so for us, we're only a few months into into ownership. But it's been a, a really exciting, um, it's been a real sprint for us from the time that we closed to where we are today. Um, we're excited about where we are heading into the Olympic break. And I just think we're going to continue to build on everything that we've started to do so far. When did it hit you that, oh my God, we're actually running this team? <laughs> Has it hit you yet? Uh, Suzanne, you want to go? <laughs> I would say for me, it was probably the first game, you know, when we actually hit the first game of the season, it was up until that point, it was, it was such an actual sprint to get from um, taking over ownership of the team. Um, we went very quickly right into, um, you know, training camp and we were so entrenched in COVID protocols and trying to figure out how we were going to make it all work this season um, it was a unique season already given the Olympic break. Then we had trying to play in our home arenas with, you know, amidst a myriad of, of COVID protocols and changes um, and a really ever-changing landscape around those protocols. Um, so I think for me, it was the tip off of the first game when it really became real that, hey, this isn't just a business that we acquired. This is a this is a this is a sports franchise that we that we acquired. And there's like a hell of a lot of work has gone into this point, but boy, it's also a hell of a lot of fun too. Yeah, and I agree. And I would say for me, it was media day. You know, there was a lot of work that was put into media day. So to see the players in uniform, media day is something that I've done personally 
11 years in my career. So I've seen a hundred thousand media days, I feel like, but to have one that's your own, that you help bring to life. And I just, it was exciting to see the players' excitement at media day. So I think that was when the first time, like, as I was just looking around, I was like, well, this is crazy. It's And to Suzanne's point, it's, it's super exciting to, when you're a part of a business that's also sports, we all know how sports makes us feel. So to be able to be in a business that has both of those, it's great. Now, Renee, this is a question that's been in the back of my head for ever since ever since we decided we're going to go for the, go for this and have you both on the show. Renee, now you're vice president of the team. You're doing a lot of work with community outreach. But you're you've been used to pressure because you've already had one of the toughest jobs in the world. You were Gino Ariema's point guard. Uh-huh. Now how did those experiences and your experiences as a player, how is that, tra- are you finding that it translates into this new role in ownership? And if so, how so? Oh my gosh. Like, yes, the simple answer. Yes. And I think in all aspects, you know, at UConn, you, there's, there's things that, you know, when you play for UConn that everybody's gunning against you, that's just how it's going to be. So I've learned to be on that side of things. Um, you also learn that excuses don't matter. Like if a UConn team loses, no one cares. They're like, oh, what is UConn? You got this player that like no one ever cares if like UConn's going through stuff. If players are hurt for UConn, we've had to have that no excuse mentality just because we know no one cares. And I think that was good preparation for the real world because no one really cares what you're going through in your personal life. They want you to get whatever it is done. Like whatever your task is, whatever they need from you, whatever that deliverable is, you got to get that done. And so I think that just starting at UConn, I've had the mentality, even as a player throughout my career, that I just try not to make excuses. You know, like people ask me about my schedule all the time. Yes, I have long days, but who cares? Like, you know, like I chose to do that and it's exciting. So I think the best thing that I learned from Coach Ariema, and he has told me personally out of his mouth many times that like no one cares, figure it out. Like he'll put eight practice guys against us, five players on the court, and he'll just tell us to figure it out. And we'd be like, they're guys, they're bigger, they're faster. I don't care, figure it out. So I've kept that mentality my whole life. Do you miss playing? I, you know, I actually don't. And, and the reason I say that, Suzanne talked about it. It's been a sprint. Like, I don't, I don't, have, the, I don't have time. <laughs> like, I don't necessarily have time to even do those type of things. But I found a different joy in it. And, you know, for me, I played... 11 years in the WNBA, but I also played 10 years overseas. So if you look at how women's basketball goes, I feel like I played 25 seasons personally, because when we're done in the WNBA in the summer, most of us within two to three weeks, we go play a whole nother season, like a full season somewhere in Europe. And so that can get tiring. You know, that wears your body out. I'm definitely not missing waking up in pain every day. I'll just throw that out there. It feels really good to just walk around and not feel anything. So I never thought I would say that, but I'm, I'm enjoying the other side of basketball. Well, looking, looking quickly at the Renee Montgomery travel log, I see Lithuania, Israel, yeah. Russia, Australia. <laughs> I mean, there you've traveled. You have, I mean, you have traveled around, you've traveled around a little bit. One quick thing I do want to mention, want to, want to ask you as a player, your thoughts on the collective bargaining agreement. Yeah, no, it's definitely growth. You know, I was on the executive committee, the collective bargaining agreement before this one. And we all can admit that wasn't a great agreement. It wasn't great for the players. We didn't feel great about it. This is a collective bargaining agreement that we can feel good about. You know, there's, there's, growth in lifestyle you know there's growth things that i know a lot of people are saying we should have already had look i'm glad we have it now so for me i just progress is always good now one thing before we get on to the next question i do want to mention that you played for one of my favorite teams and i just want to say i enjoyed i enjoyed that one season when you played for one of my favorite teams when you were at canberra capital Oh, <laughs> yeah, I am a you. I am a fan of the Canberra Capitals. How did that happen? <laughs> well, because uh, one of my best friends back at one of my best friends from my hometown played in Australia. In fact, still lives in Australia. 
played most of her career in the in the WNBL and and also another one of my favorite players, Lauren Jackson was like Miss Canberra oh, Capital. Okay, so okay. I liked them because I liked her. And then when you were played there back in 15, 16, I was like, they yeah. signed Renee Montgomery. Well, all right. Full disclosure, I live in Connecticut. I saw you play a great deal. Wow. I Y'all saw you back to Connecticut. Yeah, I saw you I saw you play a lot of games at Camp One at Excel Center. And I and I can tell you one of my favorite players to watch. Thank One you. thing though, we're in the we are in the Pride Month. What's it What's it like being in Pride Month, knowing that you're both, in a sense, and still an anomaly in the sports world, becoming less so, out and proud owners of a team and movers and shakers in an in an industry. So I'll I'll, I'll I'm gonna go first only because I'm a little older than Renee is, but I'll <laughs> put it that way to be nice. Right? I, I think. You know, for me, um, being out, not just in the sports world, but for me, you know, I my was a, started in corporate law and um, came into commercial real estate and, and now being in sports, for me, it's been a, a, a true um, evolution watching how the corporate world and the sports world have both changed over the years. You know, I came out of law school in the early 90s and was working at a Wall Street firm, and it was not a place you wanted to be out um, and feel good about your career progression. Um, by the time I came up, uh, left New York and came to Boston in the mid-90s, for me, I had made the personal decision, like, I'm going to be out, and either I'm going to make partner being out or the firm that's not the right firm for me. And so, because uh, for me, it was all about needing to be who I was, right? And needing to be my authentic self. And so um, I feel like we're all so much better when we can do that. And I also feel like there, you know, I feel like I stand on the shoulders of women who came before me and couldn't be out and open and be, you know, looked at, you know, looked, you know, looked upon as, you know, successful businesswomen. Um, and so, to me, it's just it's been a natural progression. I think that we need to we need to be vocal about it because I think we owe it to younger women coming up now, even younger than you, Renee, right? Yep. That, <laughs> that, because if you can if you can see it, you can be it. And you know, for when you know when I was coming out of you know undergraduate, I, I was never really thinking about that because there were none. You know, you didn't. They, people were not visible in these roles. And that's why I think it's really important for us to talk about these things and to be open and vocal about our experiences and, you know, making sure that we're bringing people along because the only way this is going to continue to change and evolve is if people see us for who we are, right? And I don't consider myself a, you know, a gay woman in sports management. I consider myself a woman in sports management who happens to be gay. And those are two different things. And I think that that's the more we the more we're able to showcase and show that we're just as capable of running a business as, as anybody else. I think the better off everyone is going to be. Yeah. And, you know, I think to that point, shattering those stereotypes in a sense of what people think that it's going to look like, what people think that a gay woman is going to be like, I think just that's kind of been, you know, my fiance, Serena Grace, she gets a lot of attention. And I like that in a sense of people are shocked to find out that she's a lesbian. And it's like, wow, I wonder why, you know what I mean? So it's kind of just breaking all of those stereotypes in a sense of, yes, completely normal, like Suzanne said, business women. And yes, our, our spouses, we, we are gay. And so I think that that is a, a change that needs to happen almost to normalize it in a sense of, yeah, okay. And, you know, it needs to be that. Okay. And it needs to be amplified so that people can understand that women can hold those high and you know what, to just take it a step further, women can hold those high management positions in general and whatever your sexual orientation is that we've never asked that of men, you know, like if a man is a cheater, I don't necessarily know if that goes against his business acumen. But that's that's the things that gets into women. Well, well, she might have this or she might have this flaw. It's almost as a knock. And so we need to start making it more so as just a, a knot on your belt. Like that's 
Yes, I am. And that makes me more diverse than this. That makes me more understanding when it comes to this. That makes your company more inclusive because now we can see from different angles, the, the woman angle, the LGBTQ angle, we have different now diverse backgrounds that bring to your company. I want people to start thinking of it as an asset more so than anything else. Sherman set the way back machine for this time last for around this time last year. And we're in the middle of trying to figure out a short season. There is this growing moment that's turning into a movement in this country. We are in the we are in the swelter in the heat of summer and the swelter of the heat and the heat of pan, of a pandemic. Renee, first for your end, what first what made you decide last year? What was the defining factor in you sit deciding to sit out last year? Yeah, it was just that that string of events for me, um, a string of murders. George Floyd, Maude Aubrey. I'm in Georgia, so the temperature was high here. And I think that that had a lot to do with it as well. I was sitting still. You know, I was used to taking three or four flights a week. And all of a sudden, we're all in a pandemic. We're all in our house for 24 hours a day. And that means I had a lot of time to think about what's going on. And I was never naive to think that things were all kumbaya. But I did think we were further along than what I was seeing on my television screen. I did not think that in 2020 I would see someone get murdered on TV and then it tried to be justified. So those are the things that kind of led me to, to sit out because I just felt like I wanted to do more. I'm a player that is passionate about whatever I do. I'm, I'm into whatever I'm doing. And so if I'm playing basketball, but I'm thinking about how can I make a change or how can I make an impact, then that's doing a disservice to my team and my teammates. Um, so that was one of the first things. I did. I, I talked to the coaching staff. I talked to my teammates. I let them know what I was thinking and everybody was like stood firm behind me. So that was a great feeling. You know, it was interesting. So we're, I'm based in Massachusetts. I live in Massachusetts and we were amidst, you know, the pandemic sort of, you know, managing, uh, managing the business and honestly watching from afar what was unfolding with just a, a sadness that's hard to describe an outrage that was that was tough to contain and a desire to somehow do more right it was clear that there was this racial reckoning that was happening in the country and you know that we had a chasm that was growing wider and it was how do we how do how do we seize on this moment and make sure that we move in the right direction right from this how do we how do we lend our voice how do we lend our uh, investment how do we lend our resources in a way that could result in some sort of positive change after that string of murders after the, you know, the the civil unrest, after all of the things that we saw happening, you know, across the country. And so, you know, we, we and I, when I say we, I mean, Larry and I, you know, watched from afar um, what the Dream 2020 team did and that courageous act that they took of coming out and supporting Reverend Warnock um, in the Senate election and um, after everything that had sort of unfolded, and it was to, to, to us, I think that was that was a, a defining moment. It was like this is an incredibly courageous, powerful group of women. How can we help them? How can we help amplify their voices? How can we further their interest? How can we make an impact? in a way that's gonna you know, promote positive change. And that was what prompted us to really look at an investment in the WNBA and specifically you know, in the Atlanta dream. I wanna read something, get a gut reaction from this. We are the women of the Atlanta dream. We are women who support a movement. We are strong and we are fierce. We offer a voice to the voiceless. Our team is united in the movement for black lives. It is not extreme to demand change after centuries of inequality. This is not a political statement. This is a statement of humanity. Black Lives Matter, the players of the Atlanta dream. Renee, 
Can you recall, like, was there a meeting that drafted this? Was there players getting together? What led to that tweet? Uh, I can remember that Elizabeth Williams reached out to me and she was like, um, Renee, I know you're not here in the wobble, but we need your help. And I'm like, of course, what's up? And she's like, can you get on a Zoom with the whole team tonight? And I was like, of course. And so when I got on the Zoom, there were a lot of passionate women trying to figure out what would be what would be our stance. You know, there's a lot going on, not just in the world and the civil unrest happening everywhere, but as I mentioned earlier, there was a lot going on in Atlanta. And so the the players of the Atlanta Dream just wanted to make sure that their presence was felt, their their statement was made, and that they could continue playing basketball now that whatever was was made. And so there was different ideas being tossed around. Do you know, do you take the shooting shirts off like we remember the Clippers did when in the NBA when they had an incident? Did we take the shooting shirts off, put them in a half court? Do we write a statement? Do we have somebody do a vert? Like, basically, we were talking about what's the best way to to go about making a stance for the Atlanta Dream, and um, that was it. Was it was honoring, you know, and humbling for people to for for the players to want to bring me in on that, and you know, I, I put my signature on there as well because I think that that statement, not only the Atlanta Dream players, but I think if we if we put that statement around, I think we'd have a lot of signatures that agree with that statement. For for yourself, what was the thing? Was there a particular thing that the previous owner of the team did? That what was that straw that broke the camel's back for you? For me, it was more so about the Atlanta Dream. There was nothing that, no outside, and this is just how I am as an athlete and how I am as a, a as a person. Outside noise can never get to me. Like it's like who's in my huddle, who's in my team, and that's who I ride for. So there was never anything that made me like feel any type of way in a sense of that I had to react. It was more so I wanted to take a stance with the players. I wanted to take a stance with the city of Atlanta. I wanted to stand with, with Stacey Abrams. I wanted to stand with Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms. That's, that's the kind of stance that I wanted to take. And so that's what everything was about for me. You know, it was making, making an impact. Remember the 3rd of November was, was what my foundation created to just remind people the task at hand. There's a lot going on right now. It's the summertime. We got to keep that passion all the way to the polls and the election in November. So that's what that's what was triggering for me. How can we keep that same energy all the way to the polls? First thoughts that came to your mind when you met each other, you looked each other in the eye and said, we're about to own a basketball team. <laughs> I think, you know, for uh, two things, I think... Um, the commissioner introduced uh, Larry and myself to Renee, which is how we got introduced to Renee. And uh, I'll just say, I, I think bringing Renee into the ownership group was clearly one of the smartest decisions we ever made um, for a, a variety of reasons. And I, and I won't bore you with all of them, but I will say that uh, Renee brings a, a level of energy to everything that she does and a passion um, that is, is, is difficult to match. And, um, it's, it's as infectious as it is, it's difficult to match. It's just, it's remarkable. And I think that the, I, I think Renee, I, I think maybe five minutes into our first conversation, um, cause we, we did not know each other until Kathy Engelbert made the introduction. I would say five minutes into our, our first conversation on zoom, I knew that this was the person we wanted to bring into the ownership group. I knew that this is someone who I would love to work with. This is someone who could really help us advance our goal of being the model franchise in the WNBA, of winning both on the court and off the court. And I, you know, from I went from a very quick sort of trying to assess whether Renee would be the right person to selling Renee on why she should come into the ownership. Um, oh, for anyone who knows me, that's a quick <laughs> pivot for me because I'm not joking that <laughs> quick on that pivot. No, for me, it was the same. I agree. Like, I was so nervous going into the call just because you don't, you don't, you don't know what you're getting yourself into. So we know 
I knew what the city of Atlanta needed in a sense of before the dream. I knew as a player what I would want, but I didn't know what Suzanne would be like, what Larry would be like. And I agree, like five minutes into the call, it was wild. Like I don't know how else to explain it other than it was pretty wild to see that we were bouncing things back and forth and they were like, yeah, we want to do this in the community. I'm like, Oh my gosh, you guys know I love the community. Like, you know, it was just, it just felt right. And I don't know how to explain it because I haven't really had very many situations like that in the past where you go from not knowing each other at all to we get on one call and we understand that we want to go into one of the business, the biggest endeavors probably of a lot of our, you know, lives. And so that to me, I was just so relieved to know a lot of people know where I stand on things, but I was relieved to see that Suzanne and Larry, they stand the exact same as me. It's not that I have to pull them and be like, hey, we should do this in the community or, hey, we need to have voting booths at the game. That was Suzanne's idea, you know, to have some voting booths at the game, which we will be having moving forward. But that was just to me, it just I knew it was the right thing. I knew they were the right people. And I knew that just with her background, Suzanne. Also, you know, I love Kat, you know, I just, so it just all came together. Suzanne has, you know, two sons. I have a son. It just felt right in a sense of everything made sense. And so just, that was a tangent, but I was really excited because when you're doing business with somebody, the level that we're doing business, you really want to like them. Like, you know, you really want to like who you're working with. You really want them to be cool people. It's not always like that. So with me and Suzanne, as much as we talk, I mean, it's just it's like my whole family loves them. Uh, it's it's great. Like, it's just a welcome feeling. Yeah, I think when you spend as many hours working together as you have um, over a short period of time, it, it I will say Renee just feels like family. You know, I think my, my, my kids think of Renee as family and they've only met her in person once, but they feel like they know her so well. And uh, my spouse, Kat, you know, um, really just uh, talked about Renee and Serena and um, it's been great. It's been really great. No matter what, you've made history here. And now you're going to look forward to making some history on the court. You know, perhaps perhaps a championship ring. Come on perhaps now. A perhaps, a per perhaps a parade in Atlanta. Perhaps, perhaps years from now, I'll be sitting in a nice seat at the events arena at the Basketball Hall of Fame in Springfield, Massachusetts, seeing Renee Montgomery inducted. With all these things you've been through and all these things to come, what about this last year do you want people most to remember from it and most to carry forward? I would just say the, the not knowing, the faith of it all. I mean, you got to think about Atlanta Dream players taking a stand in a situation where it was just not easy. You know, and that's a bold stance. Not only that the, the Atlanta Dream made, but the WNBA made. I want people to understand a, a Northland coming in and taking over a team that's not necessarily financially. If the books, if you're looking at business wise, that's not maybe the, the most amazing investment, but understanding the faith of it all. So I would say just 2020 is the year of faith. You know, I opted out not knowing what in the world would happen. I don't even have a job, um, just faith. So I think that everything about what Atlanta did as a city, you know, believing that the Senate could be flipped, believing that the election could be won, everything that happened in Atlanta was basically based on faith when it started. And so I think that's what everybody needs. to. We're all looking at the results. We're all looking at what happened everything could have went dramatically different and it could have been a different conversation that all of us are having. But I think the faith of it all is what's the most amazing part, because now we know, you know, we won the Senate race. Now we know that we won the election. Now we know that, you know, we're part of the ownership group, but we, no one knew that in the beginning in 2020. Uh, first of all, I am, I am from just outside of Springfield, Massachusetts. So I'm uh, very familiar with the Hall of Fame, and I would love to be sitting there uh, in the cushy seat as well when Renee Montgomery gets inducted into the uh, into the Hall of Fame. So um, for me, it, it, it's I would say it's investing in women. You know, I think as much as as much as last year was and the events of, of last summer really brought about a racial reckoning. I think in this country, I think. 
what we're now seeing is also there's a reckoning around women and how we how we value women, how we value women's sports, how we how we treat women in the workplace, how we um, you know can uplift them as opposed to constantly trying to keep them down. And I think that what you know I've used this term before. You know there were early and some early questions when we acquired the team. Um, some early questions I, I received were you know. I, why are you willing to bet on women? And I'll, I'll say this again, we're not betting on women, we're investing in women. And, you know, there's a very different mindset when you're betting than when you're investing. And we view this as an investment in women and women's professional sports. And um, we're pretty excited about the opportunity and we're here for the long haul. So we are, um, we're long-term investors and we really believe in the franchise. We believe in the city of Atlanta. Um, we're incredibly grateful for Dream 2020 and everything that they did to bring us to where we are today so that we could have this opportunity. You've given me a new phrase. The word bet is out, invest is in. Oh no. Invest is in. Renee Montgomery, Suzanne Hebert, thank you for being on the Transporter Room. I'm going to beam you both back down to Atlanta. And, oh, yeah, go dream. See you in the playoffs. Yes. Thank you. Special thanks again to Suzanne Hebert and Renee Montgomery for joining us today. Also a special thanks to our guests from earlier, Charlie Hanno and Regina Victor, for also joining us. And I also thank all of you out there for being a part of the Transporter Room. And if there's something you want to see or something you want to say about what we do, leave a comment on our Twitter page or on our Facebook site. Because everything we do, we do for all of you. That's the Transporter Room for this week. I'm Carly Chardonnay-Webb. Live long and prosper, and steady as she goes. I'll see you all next week.